This is The Brief, Tracking the Empire, with Justin Podor, John Elmer, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. On this episode, Pipeline Blockade. We don't have much left. They took all our land already. And the chiefs are now with their blankets down 39, and they're going to block that road. And we're asking you guys to peacefully leave this, vacate this, because it's an eviction notice from the Wet'suwet'en chiefs. Wet'suwet'en evict Coastal GasLink, who are trying to build a gas pipeline through their territory. We'll be discussing the context of their struggle against the Canadian state and corporations. We'll also be joined by Jeffrey Monaghan discussing the policing of Indigenous movements. Hey, guys, welcome to The Brief for this week. Hey, Justin. It's nice to be here, Justin. Yeah. And Nora. Hi, Nora. Hi, John. Hi. John came over this week, and uh, he brought over some dinner. The dinner in question was fish and chips. I'm allergic to fish. I can't eat fish. Really? But um, All fish? All fish, yeah. Anyway, so he brought it over, and and John... um, and you, I, I, I mentioned it to you guys, and uh, over our WhatsApp chat, and and uh, you said something like, you know, fish and chips can solve any problem or whatever. And yes, I, and I, solve and I said, yeah, tell yeah, that to the delicious. T- tell that to the victims of the Amritsar massacre. You know, referring to major massacre by the British colonial military of Indians in India in 1919, because for me, fish and chips is associated with. England and England is associated with the British Empire and colonialism. Oh, this is how my mind works. Yeah, and so just before the show, I was looking up on uh, Wikipedia, no less, uh, the history of fish and chips, because I know that chips are potatoes and potatoes come from Peru. So that's, you know, it's not going to be uh, an indigenous food to England. That's already colonialism, right? If you have potatoes. And then it turns out I just discovered the fish part, the battered fried fish, you'll be interested to know, John, is a Jewish, and Nora actually, is That's a right. Jewish. Um, it's it's may have come from Western Sephardic Jewish immigrants from Holland. Uh, in, in 1845, Alexis Sawyer, in his first edition of A Shilling Cookery for the People, gives a recipe for fried fish Jewish fashion, which is dipped in a batter of flour and water. Oh, it's so delicious. We like delicious. to batter our foods a lot. Yeah. You batter it and you fry it. So you get a Jewish recipe for fish and you get potatoes from Peru and you fry them all up and it, you get an English dish. So what, what's more What's more co-optation? What's more colonial yeah, co-optation? Yeah, it's very British. It's very British. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. delicious. It's a delicious food. It's a delicious food. I, I mean, yeah, you I, should I'll try it sometime, Justin. <laughs> and then die. Try it and then die. So sad. So, like also yeah. shellfish? You can't eat shellfish? I just, I can't eat any of it. Wow. But, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, you know, I, I, I think I've mentioned before that I'm, I think vegans have all the arguments on their side and, and, you know, I'm trying to, I've been trying to continuously trying to move in a, in a more vegan direction in my life. So I wouldn't eat fish even if I could, but, uh, here's another but little you still story. still eat the Peruvian potatoes. I'd eat the Peruvian potatoes. hundred percent. hundred percent. But, uh, here's another little story. I met a guy in the summertime who has an allergy, and I, I have to think very carefully to explain to you how it works, but he has an allergy 
to meat. He can't eat any meat, meaning like pork and beef or buffalo or any of those variants because... Is it because he has Lyme disease? No, but it's something very similar. So it's there's a tick called the yeah. Lone Star Tick. And the Lone Star Tick has bitten this friend of mine, this other scientist. And the Lone Star Tick bites you and then there's some antibody that forms. And the Lone Star Tick also bites these other animals. And so when you're when you eat that animal, your immune response is basically to go into overdrive because of these antibodies that have been introduced. I don't know if antibodies is the right word, but because of this, I'm going to call them antibodies, even if I'm wrong. These antibodies that have been introduced by the Lone Star Tick. And it occurred to me that if, you know, vegans wanted to, I was, I thought, oh, you better not tell the vegans about this because uh, a militant (laughs) vegan strategy. Yeah, the Lone Star Tick infestation. (laughs) You've got a militant (laughs) vegan strategy right there, which would pretty much put the meat industry out of business. You heard it here first, friends. (laughs) <laughs> Even fish and chips, though. I uh, know fi- he can eat chicken. He he did eat chicken. Wow. He, he, so it's he just can like eat red meat and pork. It's basically anything that gets bitten by these lone star ticks, which apparently oh, don't right. go after. Then maybe they can't live in feathers or something. Yeah, they they don't go in. They can't dive. They can't culture. swim. Right. So mm-hmm. you know, we started with fish and chips and colonialism, and we are going to have to talk about colonialism today. Colonialism should always be talked about. We're going to talk about colonialism at home this week. Yeah, let's yeah, dive so let's right go. in. The briefing. This week we're going to start with the blockade, the pipeline blockade in northern British Columbia. Wet'suwet'en's a nation, a territory, and a people in the northern central British Columbia mountain interior. The pipeline blockade is uh, currently, in its current iteration, protesting a 700-kilometer stretch of a liquid natural gas pipeline running from the BC border to a terminal on the west coast for export. But that's just the current iteration of this standoff between the Wet'suwet'en people and the Canadian government and its corporations. There's been half a dozen, at least, pipeline projects uh, slated to cross through this particular territory. In 2010, in response to a oil and gas pipeline from the tar sands, the community set up a blockade, a checkpoint on the road to essentially assert sovereignty over the territory. So they operate the territory on the historical principles of free prior informed consent, essentially setting up a sovereign checkpoint into their territory, acting as if essentially a border crossing. So people entering the territory, whether they're supporters, allies, or these companies or the state has to provide the free prior informed consent and essentially explain their purposes on the land. This is uh, links to an important 1997 landmark Supreme Court decision that asserted the territorial rights, the sovereign rights of the indigenous nations of in the area. That Supreme Court, Dalgamuk, was brought by the Wet'suwet'en people and a neighboring nation. And that court case asserted, affirmed the right and title to the land. Well, the corporations, the pipeline, the oil and gas, previously before that, the logging companies, 
have used essentially an injunction process, politicizing the injunctions process to effectively override the Supreme Court decision and to go over the heads of the hereditary chiefs that run the territory. The injunctions effectively create a militarized dynamic because the writs come with an enforcement component, namely that the injunctions call for the continuation of the economic project. The corporations bring the injunctions. We, we'll talk about this more in the discussion, but the injunctions are brought by the corporations, effectively then defining state policy through the corporations, because once the injunction is granted, usually on a balance of economic cost, so they say the economic cost of the pipeline being halted is more significant than the economic cost of the land being traversed. So these injunctions effectively criminalize the sovereignty of the indigenous nation, in this case, Wet'suwet'en. The injunctions have been used across the country as a way of essentially overriding the legal framework of negotiation, of the nation-to-nation negotiation between Canada's indigenous population and the state. The way that they deal with uh, with these nations is through the band council system, which is a colonial relic, which was itself a settler state imposition on the indigenous population. So they create essentially a government in a box. But the way that it works in Wet'suwet'en territory is that the historical governance is a clan-based system of hereditary chiefs. The band councils effectively operate as the interlocutor between the state and the First Nation. So the governance structure is the hereditary structure. And that was affirmed by that Supreme Court case, the Dalgamu case from 1997. So the hereditary chiefs in the band council, the band council doesn't have rights to usurp control and decision making. Um, so essentially upending the sovereignty of the nation in order to push these pipelines through. In 2010, one of the clans on the Wet'suwet'en, the Unistaden, set up a blockade, a checkpoint, and effectively uh, built a camp on the proposed route of the original pipelines that were coming through. As I say, there's half a dozen pipelines, but at the time, it was a tar sands pipeline. They set up a blockade in a camp which has existed to this day. A year ago, it was raided. 14 people were arrested. It was raided in a militarized RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, paramilitary operation. Previously, the RCMP had blocked the road on the other side of the checkpoint, effectively sealing in the, the blockade. Recently, the Wet'suwet'en evicted the pipeline company that was working through Coastal Gas Link. Here is Frida Hewson delivering the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief's eviction notice. So this is a letter that's signed from all the head hereditary chiefs from the Wet'suwet'en that sit in our feast hall. Mm -hmm. We held a feast hall saying that we did not approve of these projects and we were ignored. And they ignored our decision and go talk to other people to try to push their projects on. And the Wet'suwet'en chiefs went to Delgamukastewa court case, spent millions of dollars to prove these were our lands. And they proved it in that courts. So what did they do? They changed the court's legislation to make us look like criminals on our own land. We do this for your kids, your grandkids. We don't have much left. They took all our land already. And my clan only has two territories. This is one of them. And we use it culturally. We hunt, we do our medicines, we pick our berries. We teach our kids. 
So this has been sent to David Pfeiffer. So this is a letter and the chiefs are now with their blankets down 39 and they're gonna block that road. And we're asking you guys to peacefully leave this, vacate this because it's an eviction notice from the Wet'suwet'en chiefs. Yeah. So if your boss tells you, yes, you guys need to vacate, then we're not gonna block you from going out. But once, if you guys refuse, then we will close the road and they'll probably have to fly you out. Right. We're just sending the message to the province and the federal government that they can't bulldoze over indigenous lands. We're making a stand and we're doing it peacefully. We're, we're not aggressive, we're not wanting to harm anybody, we're doing this peacefully for them to seriously take us serious. Yeah. That we're trying to protect our lands for our kids and our grandkids. All right, I gotta go make some phone calls. That was the delivery of the Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chief's eviction notice. Recently, Coastal GasLink sought an injunction, which they received, which has set up a standoff. The injunctions implore the RCMP to enforce the writ of the court, and they provide very visual representation of the colonial arrangement, militarized RCMP paramilitaries escorting workers into the sovereign territory in order to continue pipeline construction while negotiations continue. And so it's a de facto usurping of the legal law of the land in Canada, even the settler law, but also a usurpation, of course, of the indigenous law of the land. The nature of the unceded territory in Canada is an important and um, often under-discussed element of the colonial relationship between Canada and its indigenous population. We have a clip here from Dr. Roland Christjohn, who's an Oneida from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. He's the director of the Native Studies Program at St. Thomas University in Fredericton. He's going to discuss the nature and extent of the unceded territory in Canada. This is Dr. Roland Christjohn. Nova Scotia is not surrendered territory. Canada has no right to write Canada across Nova Scotia to collect taxes from the people who inhabit the land, to cut down trees, to allocate natural resources, to pollute water in Nova Scotia. At least 90% of Quebec is not surrendered territory. About 75% of Ontario is not surrendered territory. The status of the Prairie Treaties, which do appear to be surrenders, is questionable on two bases. One, the Indians don't remember the word surrender, land surrender, being raised. And there's actually documentation where the people who are signing the treaties in the name of the Crown are saying, ha ha, we put one over on the Indians. We didn't tell them what they were actually signing. We mistranslated it. Or John McLean is a really great one for that. He says, well, we couldn't find that the people who we wanted to sign the surrender wouldn't so we found some other people, liquored them up, and declared them the chief and council, and got them to sign. How much in a fair court would those kinds of surrenders, do you think, hold up? So the status of the real surrendered land, I think, is still questionable. 75% of British Columbia is not ceded territory. Only the far northeastern arm that's covered by Treaty 8 in Alberta uh, may be surrendered territory. Where did Canada get the right to write Canada across that? When you add it all up, about 90% of Canada, even under the best case scenario, there is no legal transfer of title from the Aboriginal inhabitants to the Crown. The Aboriginal inhabitants today of Canada 
are the legal successors under European law of the unceded territory. So, not only is all this land not Canada's, but they owe for everything they've taken out. The trees have to come back, the lobsters have to come back, the gold, the nickel up in Voices Bay, the trees up in Lubicon territory, the oil underneath the Stonechild Reserve uh, outside of Edmonton, etc., etc., etc. How many supposed transfer of possession were illegal? When I talk to uh, uh, non-Indigenous people, they often say, well, that was a long time ago. I didn't have anything to do with that. Sorry, the receiver of stolen goods is also a criminal. So the fact that you've got a deed from your grandfather who stole it from the Indians doesn't make it any more legal. It's still a theft. You're a receiver of stolen goods. So none of this is expiated. It's expiated under one circumstance, and that is if Indians are eliminated. If the land literally becomes uninhabited, then it's free, free and clear. So one of the problems of European political economics in expansion into the rest of the world has always been terminating indigenous peoples. That excerpt of Roland Christjohn was taken from a documentary called Hoping Against Hope, released in 2007. Um, Justin, can you bring us up to the, the, the current phase of settler colonialism and, and theft of resources from native lands? Talk about what, what's happening now and, and how, how this ties in with uh, you know, the, the historical context here. The whole thing speaks to what Canada is, what the whole project of Canada is historically. As in, there, there's a book from the 70s that I always go back to called uh, The Genocide Machine in Canada. And the whole the genocide machine in Canada is basically you develop a method for extracting some resource in the most rapid and devastating way possible. You displace the indigenous people from that land, the people that use that land as their means of survival. And you extract those resources and you sell them to the U.S. market, basically, because that's another feature of Canada is that integration with the U.S. so that the extraction of natural resources immediately goes to the U.S. market. The indigenous people are made dependent. They lose their own access to their, the means of survival. Uh, this is the term that they use in that, that book, The Genocide Machine. And then there's this kind of stirring up of a politics of resentment against the indigenous for being dependent on the welfare of the state that has in fact dispossessed them and, and stolen their, their uh, independence in the first place. In this case, there's another element to it, which is that what's going through the pipelines. So John mentioned that, that a previous pipeline was carrying oil from the tar sands. And this pipeline is for what's so it is carrying fracked natural gas. So, I mean, people probably have some sense of what fracking is. You're drilling deep into the earth and then sideways, you're sending this pressured fracking fluid, which is basically pressurized steam water down into this pipe to expand these fractures in the rock, in the shale rock, and then extracting methane. And the methane leaks. So in the process of extracting the methane, a lot of it leaks into the atmosphere. A lot of it leaks into the water table. The water that's used as fracking fluid is not usable anymore. It's basically becomes 
poison. The water table gets full of methane. So you've probably seen the scenes from those documentaries where someone in an area where there's fracking turns on their tap and lights a match under their tap and the, the whole thing goes on, lights up in fire and flames. But just so just to take the environmental angle on this because methane natural natural gas is a nicer sounding word than methane but it's the same material and methane as a greenhouse gas is actually much worse many times worse in terms of uh, how much energy it absorbs and how much heating it causes in the atmosphere than co2 than carbon dioxide so it's a much worse fuel in terms of like gram for gram or mole for mole than co2 is and the technology for fracking has come up and more and more in recent years because of this search for extreme fuels. They call them extreme fuels, these technologies that are being developed to reach harder and harder to reach fossil fuels and then present this as if it's some kind of a solution to climate change. But in fact, all of the benefits that it's true that burning natural gas is relatively clean compared to burning coal. But when you count the methane leakage, the destruction of the water, and the fact that methane is a worse fossil fuel than than CO2, a worse greenhouse gas than, than CO2, you nullify almost any of those benefits. So uh, some, some environmentalist made this speech a long time ago where he said, you know, we have a technology that can solve the climate crisis, and it's clean, and it works and it's 100% effective. It's called leaving the fossil fuel in the ground. And that that's the technology that we need to use. And if we don't do that, we're, you know, it's going to be almost impossible to address the climate crisis any other way. You know, we can talk about what we'd have to do to leave it in the ground and we'd have to do less and probably have shorter work weeks and make less things and 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 so on. We can probably do a whole show about that all of which would make the world a better place as <laughs> but here's the here's the element of what what Soitan is doing that's so powerful like when you think about how how could we possibly stop the rush to climate catastrophe and there have been the Kyoto protocol and now the Paris agreement and these agreements have not been honored and they haven't they haven't worked, right? Emissions have continued to increase the whole time. Fossil fuel consumption has continued to increase. This search for more and more fuels continues to happen. And the worst offenders uh, historically in recent years have been obviously the Saudi regime and then this other rogue regime, which is also an unconditional ally of the United States, which is Canada. And Canada has been always at the cutting edge of breaking climate agreements internationally and kind of being the the scab of climate agreements. Some people have written about and noticed that it's these indigenous defenders of their own land and that by defending their land from extraction projects and pipeline projects like this, they're actually slowing down the destruction of the climate and the destruction of the planet. So everything that they're doing at the camp at Unistaden is actually, it has global stakes and it's actually protecting the planet for all of us, for the rest of us. Uh, whereas Canada as a kind of national state and corporate project has historically been about doing the exact opposite of that and rushing us to the brink of, in this case, climate catastrophe, but whatever whatever corporate dystopia you want to name. 
the legal relationship that Canada has to the land is either based on an agreement with Indigenous people, i.e. a treaty, which Dr. Christian talked uh, very, you know, very starkly about what the nature of those agreements were and and the extent to which they're honored. So that means that if you if you're sincere about the law, then you have to acknowledge that when you don't have consent, you actually can't touch this land. So what ends up happening is. Canada throws these, the supreme law of the land in Canada is based on these treaties or these Supreme Court decisions like Delgamu. But then whenever there's some extraction project that Canada wants to sponsor for the sake of corporate profits, they'll use lower level laws like injunctions, or in, in Ontario, they'll use the mining code that provides provision for free entry into mining or these inj- yeah these injunctions right and and they'll simply violate the rules as they depending on whatever the corporation needs or asks for so yeah the yellowhead institute released a a study an indigenous think tank in canada released a study that showed the injunction success rates in courts and it's 76% of injunctions filed against first nations by corporations are granted 81% of injunctions filed against corporations by first nations were denied so Art Manuel, who's an Indigenous land defender who passed away recently, has talked about in a couple of his books the the use of the injunction as Canada's legal billy club, essentially usurping law and, and moving to militarizing the relationship. And to say billy club is actually uh, to understate it, right, because they're using a highly weaponized, militarized paramilitary force to clear these areas. And the history of the standoffs in Canada is particularly recently fairly rich. If people remember the uh, Ganesatage, the Oka crisis in 1990, a historic standoff in Quebec uh, outside Montreal where a native burial ground was being turned into a golf course. Yeah. Gustafson Lake in 1995, white farmers protesting a native ceremonial site uh, created a month-long standoff, which was the largest police operation in BC history to the time. The, the militarized tactics included uh, land mining, the uh, throughway access using helicopters, aerial surveillance, and they even used armored personnel carriers. And in the breakup of the standoff, 77,000 rounds of ammunition were fired, but the shooting began when APCs, the armored personnel carriers, uh, fired at each other. In 2007, in the middle of the participation of the war in Afghanistan, and following on the Americans, the Canadian military released a counterinsurgency manual, which talked about three active counterinsurgency operations that the Canadians were carrying out at the time. They named Afghanistan, Haiti, And the third one was the Mohawk Warrior Society, who were listed in the manual. And a story that I did at the time on the counterinsurgency manual for interpress service. And it was picked up by the Canadian media and ran on the front page of the Globe and Mail that the Mohawk Warrior Society was included in this counterinsurgency manual. And ultimately, although they obviously are an insurgency in the way the Canadian state and the military approaches it, um, the Canadian defense minister at the time, Gordon O'Connor, was actually apologized for the illusion and removed it from the manual. But that that nature, that counterinsurgency disposition, the military disposition, is essentially a, a foreign expeditionary disposition carried out at home in Canada. 
Um, and so the RCMP are enforcing these adjunct injunctions and the corporations are effectively driving the policy. So the corporations are using the injunctions to militarize and criminalize the space. And then they're using the writ from the injunction to enforce the injunction to remove the natives from the land, which is, as Roland Christian talked about earlier, a tried, tested and true tactic. Yeah, I have to jump in here, though, because the history of the RCMP is salient, right? Like the RCMP came out of the Northwest Mounted Police, I think. That was created by John A. MacDonald to uh, fight Louis Riel. <clears throat> the Louis Riel Rebellion in Manitoba, well, there were two, but the second one was when the then RCMP went in to fight a Métis uprising in, in 1885. That's what the RCMP was created for. That's what the RCMP was always a force to police um, indigenous people. Social control and indigenous displacement is what the RCMP does and has always done. It's their specialty. Yeah. And John Clark, who hopefully we can have on the show as a guest, he's an anti-poverty organizer from Toronto. He recently wrote a blog post where he was talking about how sensitivity training isn't really going to solve the problem with police abuses because the police function is the the policing of indigenous people. But he was specifically talking about, you know, the, the idea of policing the working class and protecting private property, which is social control. And that's a lot of what the function of police is. If that's their design, going back to the 19th century when the police forces started showing up in different cities, and in, in this case, on the frontier or the Northwest uh, police, then you're not going to have a little bit of human rights training that's going to solve that. Mm. This is this is what the state is about. This is what the state does. And this is fundamental to the way that the order of private property and extraction and state power works in North America. To dovetail with that, there was that a report released just the other day by the the Office of the Correctional Investigator for the Canadian State. The Office of Correctional Investigators audit showed that the prison population rates um, for Indigenous populations in Canada, despite being five percent of the population, are thirty percent of the the inmate population for men and forty percent for women. And these numbers are up dramatically from in 2007, it was 20% for male and 25% for females, a 44% increase in the native population since April of 2010. And essentially, the numbers for non-Indigenous imprisonment are declining. And the report notes that every non-Native person leaving the prison is replaced by an Indigenous prisoner. And some of the rates in the particular provinces, particularly provinces with higher indigenous populations like Manitoba in, uh, in, in 2010, Manitoba's population was 15% native and their prison population was 70% native. In Saskatchewan, it's even higher. 11% of the population is native and 80% of the prisons are natives. And the RCMP in this counterinsurgency manual referred to prisons as community college for native gangs. So it's the way that this, you know, this report specifically points to the reasons for this poverty rates, but also racist policing and the criminalizing of indigenous peoples by the state, which is what we talked about earlier. And it's not just entering prison that um, 
there's an unequal distribution of, of people entering the prisons. Once inside the prisons, there's a second tier of assault inside the prison. Indigenous populations have higher rates of maximum security prison sentences. And then inside the prisons themselves, they have a higher rate of being in the the more militarized wings, higher security wings of the prisons. They have higher incidents of violence, use of violence against them and harm. They appear on the use of force statistics disproportionate to the other populations in the prisons. They're more likely to be in solitary confinement. They're more likely to serve more full sentences before their paroles than non-Indigenous populations. So there's layers, there's tiers to this imprisonment that that dovetails with the way that these injunctions are used and the way that the rule of law is used uh, in Canada. You know what that makes me think? That makes me think, I wish that Canada could get its act together like the United (laughs) States. I think I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about Standing Rock um, because there are so many parallels, obviously, between the way that the Canadian government and the U.S. government treat Indigenous people and Native land and give massive gifts to corporations that are actively and, you know, deliberately destroying Indigenous land for profit. You know, for, for people who were paying attention in 2016 and 2017, there was this uh, massive protest, this camp that was organized by indigenous communities in North Dakota who were trying to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline from being built on their land, including burial grounds and prime water sources for the people there. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had been planning the route of this pipeline, um, along with the the wishes and demands of Energy Transfer Partners, which is a, a massive pipeline corporation, it is now under the Missouri River, and it's part of a twelve hundred mile long pipeline. Although the professor uh, Nick Estes, who has written an, an incredible book, uh, Our History Is the Future, about not only the, the resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline, but kind of the the history of resistance by Native people in the U.S. Um, he says it it's it's about seventeen hundred miles. You know, for that for that those I think it was like nine or ten months of protests at Standing Rock, there was an outrageous treatment of protesters, mostly indigenous, but also, you know, people who are non-indigenous who came to protest in solidarity. Uh, There's something like 832 people arrested at the end, which was in, uh, I think, April of 2017. The National Guard had been evicting people, um, I think, from February 2017. They also came with attack dogs, uh, armed soldiers in riot gear. They had MRAPs, which are the military vehicles that you see in U.S.-occupied Iraq and Afghanistan, pepper spray, water cannons. And then so energy transfer and the the Dakota Access Pipeline affiliated corporations along with the the U.S. government. These corporations were, were actually looking to Israel as inspiration for crowd control methods. And I just want to read a little bit from Nick Estes's book, Our History is the Future. 
because I think it distills a lot of what was happening, you know, in terms of like increased violence, you know, in this 500 year history against indigenous people, but also like looking to modern settler colonies like Israel in terms of how to suppress native resistance. So he says uh, the police, military and private security set up their own bases and planned their own theater of operations to wage low level warfare against the prayer camps. In emails published by the Muckrock Watchdog website, Toby Schweitzer, a helicopter contractor from back in Western, a quick response oil spill and environmental cleanup company operating out of Mandan, North Dakota, sent an email uh, with the subject line, Israeli crowd control method to North Dakota probation officers working with the no dapple protests. In the email sent prior to the major police attacks and raids that would later make national headline news, he suggested the cops policing pipeline protest invest in skunk spray, an Israeli chemical weapon invented to degrade and humiliate Palestinians by dousing them in a nauseating, putrid biomedical odor that takes days to remove. And of course, those of us who you know do a lot of Palestine reporting have watched the Israeli military bring their massive armored vehicles into Palestinian villages, cities, refugee camps, and spray people with this like massive water cannon on the top of the vehicle with this putrid spray. Forget the wall, he wrote, just put sprayers all along the southern border with sensors. Might have saved lots of storefronts in Baltimore and Ferguson, uh, right? Invoking the, the the resistance to police violence in in Baltimore and Ferguson there. The U.S. needs to get some of this for the looters in any out-of-control demonstrations. Israeli crowd control method, now we are talking brilliant skunk spray. Such comments add insult to injury for Palestinians defending their homes against demolition or protesting the killing of loved ones. So really like, you know, and and in further documentation, these these, uh, mercenary security contractors fighting indigenous protesters at the Standing Rock camp used its, you know, used the the language of the so-called war on terror to describe the resistance here. I mean, they were uh, this, this uh, mercenary company called Tiger Swan, which was hired by the Dakota Access Pipeline, frequently referred to water protectors as terrorists, planned prayer actions as attacks, and the camps as a battlefield. You know, really uh, bringing the war home here where it has always been fought, you know, native lands as the battlefield for not just the settlers, the corporations who are now continuing, continuing to to steal resources and, and also pollute the land. I mean, since, you know, since that, since the Standing Rock protests ended because the, you know, National Guard and all these corporations arrested everybody. There's been at least five spills that, you know, the indigenous people and, and all of these environmental justice groups were were saying that was going to happen. And now Energy Transfer Partners wants to double the capacity of the Dakota Access Pipeline to as much as 1.1 million barrels a day. They want that to, to course through this pipeline. There we go. And, you know, and, and the Republican governor of North Dakota said just last month, he said, Pipelines are designed not to leak, but the state should prepare for the worst if they do. So so now they're trying to to coax the indigenous tribes in North Dakota to uh, sign on to these like safety protocol trainings. It's just uh, it's it's a disaster and it's a continuing disaster. And it's it's 
exactly mirrored to what's been happening in Canada. The bright spot, if I may, is just this, like there's an urgency, like there's a ticking urgency to ticking time bomb kind of urgency to the climate crisis. But like every time an indigenous nation does something like this, I really do view it as buying us a little bit more time. You know, that's that's actually the way they've put it in Wet'suwet'en. They've said something like every day that we're here is a victory. And in the, in the long run, we're going to win. We Even if we lose this, somebody said something. Somebody affiliated with this said something. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what Nick Estes' book. Yeah, yeah. That's what Nick Estes is talking about in his book as well. It's like, well, this is just like one chapter in a long history of these communities being resilient and resisting the tactics of the state. Um, and it's, you know, that Standing Rock is not over. It's not that people didn't pack up and go home. It's it's sparked this yeah. massive kind of like rejuvenation of discourse on trying to end settler colonialism and redoubling efforts to protect the land and the people there. You're listening to The Brief with John, Justin and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now back to The Brief. So on the topic of policing Indigenous movements and the repression of the movement in Wet'suwet'en specifically, I'm here on the line with a guest, uh, Jeffrey Monahan. He's Associate Professor at Carleton's Institute for Criminology and Criminal Justice. And he's the author, among other books, and publications of a book called Policing Indigenous Movements, a recent book, 2018, from Fernwood, which is a great publisher, by the way, highly recommended, and uh, Policing Indigenous Movements. And there's a chapter in that book about Wet'suwet'en and the policing of Wet'suwet'en and activists from there. So, Jeff, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Jeff, in your book, co-authored with Andrew Crosby, Policing Indigenous Movements. Uh, you guys write about Wet'suwet'en and the Northern Gateway Pipeline. So what we're hearing uh, of Enbridge, so what we're hearing now is about coastal gas. Can you relate those two projects, the prior uh, Northern Gateway to this coastal gas issue that's going on right now? Absolutely. It's a really good point to underline. Uh, when the, so we have, uh, Andy and I have uh, one of the chapters kind of looks at Northern Gateway, which really kind of was an interesting period of contestation in, you know, really kind of picked up in the early 2010s, around 2012, kind of before I don't know more and a lot of the acceleration of what we detail in terms of surveillance and policing. But what happened around Northern Gateway, there was a lot there was a lot of demos that were happening and there was a lot of different environmental assessment, kind of NEB, National Energy Board meetings and all these different things that were happening. So there's a lot of mobilizing that were happening at the time. And this was in kind of an important period when the national security apparatus was really kind of reconfiguring around this idea of critical infrastructure protection. So there was a lot of movement within the national security apparatus to kind of label things as critical infrastructure. And there's also this kind of growth in the kind of general expansion of the term extremism being used against indigenous groups and environmental groups. So it's all kind of these different things are happening within the, the national security bureaucracy. And all of a sudden, all of these demos start happening about the gateway pipeline. And so a really important focal point of the security bureaucracy ended up being the, the Unistoga. 
And it was immediately kind of flagged as a kind of more radical kind of national security-ish extremist, quote-unquote, risk, and ended up occupying a, a significant amount of resources to be kind of tracked and surveyed and monitored and had a kind of prominent position as kind of highlighted in a lot of the policing and national security reports around Northern Gateway. And that continued right up until now, today, when the Wet'suwet'en and the Unistoten camp and all of these different blockades and just forms of solidarity organizing have been happening for many years, but they've actually stretched back and really got onto the radar in that gateway period of time. Right. And I, I'm really glad you mentioned the critical infrastructure kind of concept, which which you elaborate in that chapter of your book. And another phrase that I thought was really salient for, for this discussion is you kind of you use the phrase something like the RCMP, the police, uh, act as an enforcement arm for industry, and they understand themselves that way. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the relationship between extractivism, energy extraction, corporations that are involved in extraction, and the relationship of the state and the police, how they see that network and that nexus? So the, again, I think the gateway moment in time is really important for our kind of understanding the movements within the security bureaucracy and the policing bureaucracies and how all of a sudden the companies and the, the kind of extraction companies in particular Enbridge at the time, but it's now a whole bunch of companies have been patched into the national security apparatus. So at the time in you know, 2011, 2012, and, and kind of accelerating in 2013, there was all kinds of efforts undertaken, led by the Canadian federal government under the umbrella of a couple different departments, which included the RCMP obviously as a central player, but also Natural Resources Canada, NRCAN, CSIS, Public Safety Canada, Transport Canada, CBSA, the Border Services, all of these different government bureaucracies set up this stakeholders meeting in which they explicitly identified protests, anti-extraction and anti-mineral movements, different forms of indigenous movements, land right movements as a threat to, at the time, the Harper government's interest in building kind of the energy superpower and all the different pipelines that were kind of in the air and being proposed at the time. So what ended up happening was that the bureaucracy kind of set up this meeting that would have a whole bunch of different departments patched in, kind of led by the RCMP and CSIS, uh, that would then allow energy companies to come and sit in on these meetings as, as peers. So what ended up happening, and it's kind of oscillated in different ways, but the, the, the way that this was created at the time around Enbridge, and Enbridge was a kind of central mover within this group was to set up biannual meetings where the energy companies and their different security arms, which could, we don't know for certain, but we suspect also includes different kind of private eyes and private security companies, different risk management firms, would be able to have a certain level of security clearance and they would come and they would show up at these meetings and there would be an information exchange between the national security bureaucracy and the energy companies. So the way that Andy and I and, and other researchers have tried to access records around these meetings, the, the explicit documents around the meetings, which is you know, really informative, their goal was to create this kind of two-way dialogue so that they can share intelligence and various kind of surveillance information with the companies, but they could also allow the companies to patch information into the national security bureaucracy and kind of create this peership between the companies and their security arms and the national security bureaucracy. And this has even grown in recent years where there's different portals now 
called suspicious incident reports that are portals that are maintained by the national security bureaucracy, but where private companies and private surveillance and kind of private eyes, basically security companies and the energy companies can patch intelligence and information on activists and different forms of quote unquote threats and patch it in directly to the national security bureaucracy. So all of these different efforts were really made with the explicit goal of creating more symmetry and more cooperation between the national security bureaucracy and the companies who were really kind of pushing for more policing. They're pushing for more and more response and greater response against activists and different forms of social movements that were kind of getting in the way of these kind of pipeline and extraction goals. It gets down to incredible levels of detail. You report in your chapter about intelligence coming from probably the the company, probably from Enbridge, to the level of saying something like a known member of the Indigenous Environmental Network traveled will travel tomorrow to Wet'suwet'en for a direct action camp. So they're sharing the information on like the movements of individual activists within the within the area. And then uh, the salience of the Honest Dutton camp also came through really strongly in that chapter of yours, which is, you know, fascinating now watching that it's, again, the focus of everything that's happening right now. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the story, at least the way that I kind of look at it in terms of what's happening today is that one, you know, the the police, both the kind of more regional BC police and also the kind of national security bureaucracy in Ottawa, that's kind of controlled by the RCMP, have kind of seen the Unistotin as a threat for a long time. And I think you can see in the documents and a lot of the documents that we kind of declassify and make public, Andy and I, is that uh, there's kind of different tiers of animosity, but there's a lot of animosity. And some of it is, you know, they, they use this language uh, around criminality where they're taking almost kind of nothing ish kind of infractions and they're trying to criminalize in all kinds of different ways and they're using this language of extremism but they're also just plainly sympathetic to the companies so they've developed these networks with companies they've developed these very close collaborations with companies and they want to move the the blockade and the different forms of disruptions out of the way from economic development. So you see all of this language kind of caught into the policing. And this is for years, right? This goes back to Inbridge, but you in, into the everyday kind of reporting of policing where the police just in their casual everyday reports are, are talking about the importance of jobs. They're talking about the importance of clearing out these disruptions because there's kind of this and it's a very racialized language too right like this idea of kind of like these indigenous folks who are against development and against jobs and against this form of kind of building through resource development yeah and it's it's super ideological right because police are supposed to just enforce the law they're not supposed to enforce particular visions of development or economics or uh, corporate notions of jobs or whatever like that 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 kind of language doesn't really it, it's ca- it's kind of an odd insertion to see in these documents that you're that you're analyzing absolutely and i think we can really read into a little bit you know i think part of this is the very close collaborations that have been established but there's also just an element of policing culture and especially kind of settler colonial policing culture in canada at this point where there is this very ideological settler colonial idea of indigeneity being somehow backwards or opposed to canadian values and development and the economy and jobs and all these different notions of progress so it's just intrinsically built into the ideology of police culture and you can kind of and you just see it 
you know, the way that we track documents and we track these kind of surveillance programs is looking at the documents of policing agencies, the regular everyday documents about how they talk and what they do and how they work. Uh, and it is, it's striking in a lot of ways when you read these things every day, because it really is a very direct contradiction to this idea that, you know, you're mentioning about this idea that police are supposed to be this kind of neutral, just kind of like keeping the peace and, you know, these kind of neutral brokers, right? And it's, you know, their everyday language really undercuts that narrative. And you also mention just the legal aspect of how the law in any interpretation of the law, the law is on the side of the Wet'suwet'en in this case, like very, very strongly. And so what law does the are the police enforcing here? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, that's another kind of fascinating sets of documents looking at, you know, how the police try and rationalize and, and justify their own work. And there's all kinds of different efforts over the years where the police have kind of tried to put forward different legal interpretations of their own that, you know, simply, you know, I think are really at odds with much of the kind of actual law around the land issues at stake. But there's different ways that, you know, the police are, are offering these kind of odd interpretations of wet wet and land claims. But I think the most you know important thing in terms of today uh, and what's happening in the territories is that you know the police have really decided that they are going to be enforcing these different private civil forms of injunctions, which is a real, you know, I think it's 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 just kind of plain colonial kind of brute power is really on display when all of a sudden you have a very complicated legal regime around title and consultation and all of these different, you know, very complex issues. Uh, and all of a sudden you have a company who's able to go through this kind of private process where they're able to get an injunction that kind of ignores or undercuts the really contentious and also, you know, contentious legal issues, but also very political issues and are, is able to go to a kind of a lower standing British Columbia court and get a, a form of injunction and the police have decided that they're going to enforce these things when the stakes are so high. So it really, again, gives another window uh, into the police who have discretion, but you know, who are, are far from impartial in these issues. A particular phrase the police use, and you kind of parse how dismissive it is, is you know, a lot of these protesters are concerned with Aboriginal sovereignty. And you know, when I read that, I thought, oh, you're saying that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> but, but they really do say it like it's a bad thing. But but talk about how they see themselves kind of explicitly opposed to Aboriginal sovereignty. Well, absolutely. So that ends up being throughout a number of the different kind of case studies and the, the kind of years that we're charting in the book, Aboriginal sovereignty ends up being a really kind of almost a, a magnetic word for the policing bureaucracies. They use this almost in combination with extremism. So they see forms of expressions of indigenous sovereignty as, you know, this form of extremism that they then kind of loop in and mobilize all kinds of policing resources. This is especially true with the national security side of the policing bureaucracy in the RCMP, where these expressions of sovereignty and even of title are sometimes are, are used as code to represent or kind of, kind of reposition and almost reimagine through a kind of police lens, what's actually happening on the ground as something that has to do with national security. So when it has to do with sovereignty, it kind of it, it, it 
brings in these, this idea of extremism. And I think really underlying a lot of that is that, you know, again, you know, reading in to this everyday reactions of the police, they see this as a real affront to Canadian values. So they use a certain language that's kind of like national security, extremism, violence, uh, all these things that are, are mostly imaginary. Uh, but what they really read that into uh, is as being kind of anti-Canadian. Uh, and that different indigenous groups are really trying to uh, undermine Canadian progress, extractive industries, all of these different things that the police see as normal. They see as like what they should be defending and what we should all kind of be backing. And they don't necessarily even recognize in some ways they're acting so ideological. They don't even recognize their own antagonism and their own kind of positionality in actually, you know, trying to undermine these political movements. Thank you very much, Jeff. Jeffrey. That was uh, that was really helpful. Um, and your book with uh, Andrew Crosby, "Policing Indigenous Movements," I think is really helpful. It it covers this struggle, but also quite a few other contemporary struggles where the police are surveilling and 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 repressing um, indigenous movements in this uh, part of the world. So thank you, thank you very much for that, and thank you for joining us today on the brief. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And before we leave you, here's the latest from the Unistaden camp. On February 4th, the Unistaden camp released an update titled, We're Not Leaving. As Canada prepares to violently invade our lands, we have no fear. We are peacefully living on our lands and upholding our laws as we always have. 31 days after Coastal Gaslink was evicted from Wet'suwet'en territory, RCMP helicopters circle the Unistaden Healing Center several times a day. Busloads of police have taken over local community halls, airport hangars have become RCMP training grounds, while armored pickup trucks and police dogs have been spotted in the area. Canada is preparing to use militarized force to steal our lands and destroy them with the world as witness. Our ancestors are with us. We will win. These lands will always be Unistaden. That was the latest update from the camp. And as things develop, we'll be joined by Jen Wickham, media coordinator from the Unistaden camp on an upcoming episode of The Brief. Stay tuned. That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. You can hear us once a month on your favorite podcast provider or bi-weekly by subscribing at patreon.com slash The Brief. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Music by Greg Wilson. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. <laughs>